We're continuing our series in The Men Who Watch Over Our Souls as we uh, consider the biblical qualifications for the overseer or elder or shepherd of Christ's church. And uh, once again, as uh, in previous weeks, I'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3. But before we do, today I'd like us to begin in the 18th chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 18. I'll read the first eight verses of Genesis 18, then we'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. In Genesis 18, of course, we are back in the age of the patriarchs, the life of Abraham. And here's where we enter the story at verse 1 of Genesis 18. Now, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, If now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring you a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on, since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. So Abraham quickly hurried into the tent of Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree, as they ate. And now we turn to Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. And we'll end our reading there with that word, hospitable. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word Thank you that you have given it to us, not merely so that we would be informed, but that we might be transformed by grace through the renewing of our minds. Renew us in our minds, in our hands, in our hearts, in our feet, in all that we do, that you would be glorified and that we might enjoy you in this life to which you call us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
one of the ways in which we fail to capitalize on some fairly obvious opportunities, I think, to lead our neighbors to Christ is by failing to have them into our homes. Often. The Christian home represents the clearest lens through which the Christian faith and life can be observed. Both for the sweet, abounding grace that's always on the increase there, and for the all-too-common sound and fury and general disorder that by grace is absent. Something better and more wholesome lives and reigns here within the Christian home. And this distinctiveness, the distinctiveness not of the merely nominal, but of the genuinely Christian home, this distinctiveness is real. It is almost palpable. When people are in our homes, they notice it. They notice it. Maybe they like it or maybe they don't. But like it or not, they notice the difference. The grace, mercy, and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ reign here in the Christian home. There's order. There's beauty. There's love. There's affection. If you're a Christian and the head of your home, then to everybody who passes through your front door, as often as they pass through your front door, your home represents to them the kingdom of God. Your home is the kingdom of God in miniature, the kingdom of God on display for them. And it may be the only kingdom of God those neighbors of yours ever get a taste of. You might remember the Queen of Sheba back in 1 Kings chapter 10. The Queen of Sheba came to visit King Solomon in Judah and she couldn't believe the blessedness that she saw there on display in his kingdom. She said, the half hasn't been told me. I can't believe what my eyes are seeing. And friends, your home represents a little piece of that. Your home reflects not only what you believe as a Christian, it reflects, far more important, who you really are when you let your hair down, who you are in Christ. When the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ governs a home and governs the hearts of those who live there, it is almost as though the Egyptians were peering through the window panes of any Israelite home back in the days of the plague of darkness. Back when there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt, they didn't see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. To your lost neighbors, plunged into the darkness of ignorance and sin, the Christian home is a place of light 
of clarity, of warmth, of love. And for that reason, our homes represent really the most natural venue for evangelizing our neighbors and being a blessing to them. Clearly not everyone's called or cut out for pulpit ministry, and clearly not everyone's comfortable to go out and preach on the street corners of San Antonio or any place like it. But however humble it may be, everyone has a home. And everyone has the responsibility to use their home for the glory of God and the good of others. And yet, for many professing Christians, just having people over, even having friends over, represents a personal inconvenience to which nothing but a well-developed sense of guilt can drive them. A sense of cold, bare obligation, a sense that here they might take a deep sigh. It's our turn. It's our turn to have them over. They've had us over for the past three times Now it's our turn. A lot of Christians, unfortunately, see hospitality that way. Not in terms of of the mutual blessing it's meant to be, but more as a burden to bear. I want you to think of the Apostle Peter and his poor, long-suffering wife. Peter and his wife knew something about the inconvenience of hospitality didn't they? We saw that back in uh, the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel many, many months ago when we were preaching through Luke. Peter and his wife knew from experience what it was to have their little home in Capernaum virtually bursting at the seams with people coming to see Jesus, coming to hear him, coming to be healed by him far into the night, They kept coming to Peter's house to hear and be healed by Jesus. And looking back on it all, in his first letter, chapter 4, Peter urges the church, which by then, of course, is much larger and scattered abroad by persecution. He says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And that English word complaint is just about the best spin one could possibly put on the word that Peter uses here. The word he uses is gongusmos. Gongusmos, in which you can practically hear the whispers and the under-the-breath grumblings of the people doing it. Gongusmos is what the children of Israel did for 40 years in the wilderness. They grumbled. They murmured. They didn't much like the personal inconveniences that go along with being led forth to freedom. But whenever the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is in distress, as it was when Peter wrote his letter, 
when the church is under the kind of persecution that actually drives Christians and their families out of their homes and out of their cities, what better way to demonstrate the reality and the fervency of Christian love than by putting a roof over the heads of our displaced brothers and sisters? Another apostle, Paul, tells Timothy here in verse 2 that the overseer of Christ's church must be hospitable. Must be. And if gongus mos sticks in your mind because it sounds so much like the grumbling that it means, then the word for hospitality ought to stick there for its simple straightforward composition. The compound word philoxenia philoxenia literally means loving strangers. Loving strangers. I mentioned a minute ago how hard it is for some Christians even to put the effort into having friends over. But the bar of hospitality for Christians is so much higher than that. Certainly much higher for church officers. And we don't set the bar. Christ himself set the bar up there where it is. Luke 14, verse 12. Jesus says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since they don't have the means to repay you and you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, in that passage, in Luke 14, he just mentions it in passing, but he describes that resurrection of the righteous more fully in Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. And once again, Jesus' point about hospitality comes into focus. God remembers hospitality. He honors it. The resurrection of the righteous is that coming day when, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. So if we haven't learned it yet, we've got to learn to love strangers with the practical, sheltering, nourishing love of Jesus Christ. The practical love that brings them into our homes. And by bringing them into our homes, brings them under our care. To help us understand the place of hospitality and maintaining a biblical lifestyle. 
let's briefly trace this virtue through both the Old and the New Testament scriptures. True, it is commanded here and there, especially in the New Testament, hospitality is commanded. But far more often, rendering hospitality is just tacitly understood as that which good men do. It's almost as if if you're a member of the covenant community or if you have any knowledge of God, you just know this is the right thing to do. You do it readily. You do it willingly. You do it without grumbling. You love and care for strangers. Abraham wasn't the first one, of course, to practice biblical hospitality, but his example there in the opening verses of Genesis 18, when he welcomed those three men who came, first to announce the coming pregnancy of Sarah, and then the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, his example demonstrates a personal devotion that Abraham had to loving strangers. I want you to remember, Abraham has never seen these men before. He was sitting in the doorway of his tent. He looks up and there they are. And yet, according to verse 2, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that you may go on since you have visited your servant. Now to us Westerners, this sounds like a pretty extravagant welcome toward perfect strangers, doesn't it? So then we need to ask ourselves, does Abraham actually follow through? Does he in fact bring these strangers a, <laughs> a little water and a piece of bread? Or we might think, might this just be one, uh, one more instance of that polite Middle Eastern wordplay? Is this just a little social courtesy that they did back then? Well, let's find out. Here's what he actually did once he got those three men settled under the shade of his tree. He hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of flour. And friends, that's a little over a bushel of flour. Knead it, he says, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to his servant. And he hurried to prepare it. <coughs> and he took curds, that is, cheese, and milk, and the calf which he had prepared, and placed it before him. And he was standing there by them, under the tree, as they ate. Now, I want you to remember that at this point in time, Abraham is a man 99 years old. He's 99 years old. And it's a hot day there in the desert. And he doesn't even know these people. They've just shown up unannounced. And this 99-year-old man is running here, there, everywhere, 
just to make them comfortable, just to put them at ease, simply because they have come under the shade of his tree. And later on that very same day, his nephew Lot, who was dwelling in Sodom at the time, understood the same duty that was required of him. When two of those three strangers came to spend the night in the town square of Sodom, Lot didn't know who these men were either. And yet in the opening verses of the 19th chapter, when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground, and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may arise early and go your way. They said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. He doesn't even know who they are. He's loving strangers. And you may remember Moses' first encounter with Zipporah, the woman destined to be his future wife. At this point, when he met Zipporah, Moses is a 40-year-old, washed-up nobody. In fact, he's a fugitive on the run from Egypt. So he's out there in the desert, and providentially he helps the daughters of Jethro water their father's flock unmolested by the other shepherds, because these other shepherds, these men, had been making themselves a nuisance to the girls. They'd been making themselves a nuisance up until Moses showed up to defend them, to help them with their work. The second chapter of Exodus tells us that afterwards, at the end of that day, when they, the daughters, when they came to their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what's more, he even drew the water for us and entered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it that you've left the man behind? Invite him in to have something to eat. It is unbelievable to Jethro that his daughters wouldn't invite even a strange man into their home for supper, especially after he'd already shown such kindness to them. And we've only gotten into the second chapter of Exodus. Obviously, we could spend a great deal of time on this. I could mention the curse that fell upon the nations of Ammon and Moab in Deuteronomy 23, verse 4, for the simple reason that those nations did not meet the children of Israel with food and water on their way out of Egypt. Those nations, Ammon, Moab, and others, were inhospitable. And speaking of Moabites, Boaz in the book of Ruth certainly knew how to make a stranger 
feel loved, didn't he? He told that humble Moabitess Ruth, Look, don't go anywhere else. Come glean in my fields under the watchful eye and tender care of my servants. 1 Kings 17 tells us the story of the widow of Zarephath, who, impoverished as she was, still provided the prophet Elijah with a roof over his head. Then on the heels of his most recent lodging down at the brook Cherith, where the ravens had been caring for him, she offers him a place to stay. Dear ones, there's a lesson here in the story of the widow of Zarephath. Don't ever imagine that your silver has to be polished, that your floors have to be waxed, your toilet bowl has to be scrubbed, your house in perfect order in order to love strangers. Whatever hospitality you're able to offer is going to be a considerable step up for some people who used to be fed by ravens. A Shunammite woman took hospitality a step or two further in the days not of Elijah, but of Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we read that there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunam, where there was a prominent woman and she persuaded him to be fed. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber and let us set a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. And it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. The Shunammite woman makes her own home a bed and breakfast. That's what she's doing. It's not enough just to feed this good man whenever he stops by. Let's add on a room upstairs so he can stay comfortably whenever he comes by this way. I don't want to belabor this point, but the Old Testament example sets a standard for hospitality that I don't think many Christians today would even realistically consider. And that standard continues to live on into the New Testament. Jesus and his peripatetic school of twelve apostles. They could always find a home with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha there in Bethany whenever they passed through. Often they were invited into the homes, even of Pharisees. If you remember the Gospels, they were invited into the homes of the Pharisees. And on occasion, Jesus felt the need to correct glaring deficiencies in the hospitality offered. I want you to ponder that for a moment. Just imagine having to have Jesus point out to you your social deficiencies. But you can think, for example, of Jesus in the home of Simon the Pharisee. In Luke 7, Beginning at verse 36, a sinful woman happened to slip in to the house to express her devotion to Jesus in some pretty extraordinary ways. 
And turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Time fails me to mention the New Testament commendations of such people as Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, of Lydia in Acts chapter 16, of Phoebe, Priscilla, and Aquila in the opening verses of Romans 16, of Gaius in the third letter of John, and of a host of other faithful Christians who are either offering or benefiting from this indispensable grace of hospitality in the church. The apostle wraps up his admonition in Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2, with a tacit reference way, way back to those early days of Abraham and Lot. Let love of the brethren continue, he says. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So if all Christians from Abraham onward are called to this high standard of hospitality, then why is loving strangers listed among the specific qualifications of the office of overseer or elder? Well, like so many other qualifications that we find here in this list in chapter 3, the difference between church member and church elder isn't so much a difference of kind as it is of degree. All Christians ought to consider hospitality to be their sacred duty because God, in the proclamation of the gospel of his Son, invites even the likes of us, the likes of us, strangers, aliens, to become members of his household, have a place at his table. All Christians need to be looking for opportunities to do this, to love strangers and invite them in to demonstrate the kingdom and the power and the glory of God. But the elder, along with his wife, ought to excel at it. Peter exhorts the elders of that scattered, far-flung church that he was writing to, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So in our pastoral search, let's be praying and looking for a man with a surpassing gift of hospitality by which he's able both to prove the kingdom of God to strangers and to gather into Christ's house and home the broken, 
scattered outcasts of Israel. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can call you our Father, that you have taken us who were strangers and aliens to the kingdom, to the covenants, to the promises of the fathers. You've brought us near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've seated us at your table. You've called us your children, your sons and daughters. So we come to you with grateful hearts for all that you've done for us, and we pray that you would fill us with a, a need, a compulsion, a love that reaches out to others and brings them in to our homes to see that kingdom, that power and glory, which is Jesus Christ's alone. We ask these things and we praise you in his great name. Amen.